This is reaction. Movements, moments, and monsters of the reactionary right. Phyllis Schlafly, Part 6. Make America Great Again. Again. At the 1992 Republican National Convention, primary loser Pat Buchanan gave an absolute banger of a speech in which he exalted Reagan as one of the great statesmen of the modern era, bashed Bill and Hillary Clinton as radical, homosexual-loving elites, and declared that America was in a culture war. At the heart of that war was gay rights, prayer in schools, abortion, and the 1992 L.A. riots, with all the racist overtones that entailed. Today, this speech could come out of the mouth of practically any Republican and we probably wouldn't bat an eye, but at the time it was very poorly received by the press. The liberal writer and humorist Molly Ivins declared that the speech probably sounded better in the original German. The bad reception spooked the Bush campaign, and so they steered clear of culture war issues in their bid for re-election. This allowed Bill Clinton to set the agenda, and he focused on the economy, a major weak spot for Bush, who had broken his promise to not raise taxes, and under whose presidency the economy had lagged. Clinton easily beat the incumbent Bush, and ushered in another eight years of Republican fracturing. In the 1994 midterm elections, Schlafly seized on Hillary Clinton's proposed health care plan to fearmonger about wait times and rationing, the same rhetoric we see today when even moderate health care reforms are proposed, and that, plus other factors including the mass retirement of Democrats and Newt Gingrich's contract with America, led to new Republican majorities in both houses of Congress. But the Clinton administration was resilient in the face of GOP attacks, and in 1996, the party was at familiar loggerheads. Moderate versus conservative, economic versus social, pragmatic versus principled. Senator Bob Dole was a longtime party loyalist who shied away from any stance on cultural issues, while his opponent, Pat Buchanan, was, again, a fierce social conservative. Schlafly won election as a Buchanan delegate to the RNC, but the convention proved to be a massive disappointment for conservatives. Dole tightly controlled the speakers and the messaging, which was almost entirely moderate, verging on liberal. Behind the scenes, Schlafly was in a fierce fight with the campaign over the anti-abortion plank in the party platform. Dole had insisted on a tolerance statement, which declared that the party must accept both pro-choice and anti-abortion perspectives. To Schlafly and her supporters, this was an obvious attempt to walk back the party's stance on abortion, and after long negotiations, they did manage to keep the anti-abortion plank intact. But in the end, it was all for naught, and Clinton won another four years in the White House. I mean, it was Bob Dole. Then, in 2000, Governor George W. Bush managed that rarest of feats, capturing both the establishment and the conservative sex of his party. Schlafly had supported Steve Forbes in the primary, who lost badly, but in the end, the entire party rallied behind Bush and his message of compassionate conservatism. Schlafly was deeply critical of Bush's plans to increase federal spending on education and his interventionist foreign policies, as she had been of his father's Gulf War and New World Order rhetoric, 
and she felt that the Texas governor had performed pitifully on issues with border crossings. But she was thrilled when he withdrew from the 1972 Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty and refused to ratify the Kyoto Protocol signed by Clinton in 1998. President Bush invited Schlafly to the White House in 2002 for his speech against human cloning. When Bush's tax cut plan reduced the so-called marriage penalty that raised taxes on married couples, Phyllis Schlafly was credited for her years of vocal opposition to the burden it put on single-income households. So, the Bush-Schlafly relationship was kind of a mixed bag. For decades, Schlafly's M.O. had been to use cultural issues like women's rights and traditional family values to rally conservatives, particularly religious groups. As she told U.S. News & World Report, We saw an attack on marriage, the family, the homemaker, the role of motherhood, the whole concept of different roles for men and women. What we did was take these cultural issues and bring into the conservative movement people who had been stuck in the pews. We taught them politics. And if those had been hot-button issues in the 70s and 80s, they were molten lava in the 21st century. In 2003, the Massachusetts Supreme Court ruled to legalize same-sex marriages. Phyllis sounded the alarm that universal marriage rights would lead to child brides, incest, and polygamy, and that it would rob children of the right to a mother and a father. Testifying before the Subcommittee on the Constitution of the House Judiciary Committee in 2004, she proposed that Congress use the power granted to it in Article Three of the Constitution to withdraw federal court's jurisdiction over marriage. That same year, she published The Supremacists, The Tyranny of Judges and How to Stop It. In it, she argued that activist judges had taken it upon themselves to legislate, that the Constitution was devolving into whatever the Supreme Court said it was. She cited everything from the Ten Commandments to prayer in schools, marriage equality, and pornography as freedom of speech as instances of judicial overreach. Her exact language and arguments were reflected in the 2004 RNC platform, which stated that the self-proclaimed supremacy of judicial activists is antithetical to the democratic ideals on which our nation was founded. One paragraph from the platform may as well have been written by Phyllis herself. Who knows, maybe it was. The sound principle of judicial review has turned into an intolerable presumption of judicial supremacy. A Republican Congress, working with a Republican president, will restore the separation of powers and re-establish a government of law. There are different ways to achieve that goal, such as using Article 3 of the Constitution to limit federal court jurisdiction. For example, in instances where judges are abusing their power by banning the use of under God in the Pledge of Allegiance, or prohibiting depictions of the Ten Commandments, and potential actions invalidating the Defense of Marriage Act. Additionally, we condemn judicial activists and their unwarranted and unconstitutional restrictions on the free exercise of religion in the public square. While the 50s and 60s had been about the fight against communism, and the 70s and 80s the fight against feminism, the turn of the century would see Phyllis zero in on education, secular government overreach, and judicial activism. She railed against Bush's No Child Left Behind Act. Republicans needed to be doing away with federal oversight, not pumping even more billions of dollars into the crooked Department of Education. 
And these were arguments that she was making under the Bush regime, when an ostensibly friendly was in power. But Phyllis Schlafly's reaction to the Obama administration would be fiercer than any fight since the ERA. If you had even a somewhat developed brain in the year 2009, you remember how absolutely bonkers the election of Barack Obama made the Republican right. Although we don't hear much about it today, the Tea Party movement was quite the spectacle in 2009 and saw some pretty respectable electoral wins in 2010 and beyond, especially at the state level. One leader of the Eagle Forum told a reporter, Phyllis was the Tea Party before there was a Tea Party. And you can see some of Schlafly's style in their protests, with the powdered wigs and tri-cornered hats evoking the Founding Fathers, small children carrying signs that said, Don't kill my grandma, and save me from communism. Posters with Obama flanked on each side by Vladimir Lenin and Adolf Hitler. Then, in 2012, Clint Eastwood gave a completely unhinged speech at the RNC in which he carried on a conversation with an empty chair meant to represent the president. Soon after, chairs hung from trees started cropping up in Tea Party territory, and obviously comparisons to lynchings were made. And some patriots even went so far as to actually lynch and burn effigies of Obama. Much of the fear-mongering and hatred surrounding President Obama concerned his religious beliefs. His association with the controversial pastor Jeremiah Wright was a favorite talking point of conservatives. Wright's infamous Goddamn America sermon had Republicans, and many Democrats, reaching for their smelling salts. In 2009, Wright told the Daily Press of Newport News that he hadn't had contact with the president in some time because them Jews aren't going to let him talk to me. Obama distanced himself from the pastor as he continued to draw media attention, but the damage was mostly done. The other attack on Obama's faith was the ever-present Muslim accusation. I still remember then-candidate John McCain taking a question at a town hall event in which a woman told him, I can't trust Obama. He's an Arab. To which McCain responded, no, ma'am, he's a decent family man and citizen that I just happen to have disagreements with on fundamental issues, and that's what the campaign's all about. He's not an Arab. Because, of course, being a decent person and being an Arab are mutually exclusive. And wrapped up in all of this was, of course, Donald Trump's claim that Obama was a secret Muslim born in Kenya, and thus not legitimately the president. Schlafly was a bit more savvy than some of Obama's critics, including Trump, in her condemnation of his religious beliefs. She never wholeheartedly endorsed the birther conspiracy, but she managed an even more effective criticism of him by linking socialism, secularism, and sympathy for so-called radical Islamists. Her book, No Higher Power, Obama's War on Religious Freedom, is a sort of anti-a-choice-not-an-echo, in that it argues against a candidate rather than for. This was the only kind of book Phyllis could really think to write on presidential politics in the 21st century. As she said at CPAC in 2013, We've had the establishment pick another loser for us. The fight we have, and the fight I want you to engage in, is the establishment against the grassroots. The establishment has given us a whole series of losers. Bob Dole and John McCain, Mitt Romney. After more than 50 years in politics, Phyllis was singing the same tune.
The central thesis of No Higher Power is that, through stealth and sophistry, he is gradually transforming America into a secularist and socialist dystopia along modern Western European lines. Ah, yes, Western Europe, that atheist-socialist dystopia. You may remember the big Hobby Lobby lawsuit in 2014 over the Affordable Care Act requirement that all employers provide insurance that covers contraceptives. That rule, which came down from the Department of Health and Human Services, a main villain for Phyllis, gave exceptions only for employers with closely held religious beliefs. Schlafly overstates how draconian the rule is. After all, Hobby Lobby, a frickin' craft store, won their case against the ACA before the Supreme Court. And in 2020, the Trump administration, through the courts, blew open even that regulation such that any company with a moral objection to paying for preventative reproductive care could opt out. But reading Phyllis's book, you might be led to believe that Catholic priests were personally performing abortions at Obama's gunpoint. Nevertheless, the HHS requirement gave Phyllis the central talking point for the rest of the book, that Obama was forcing religious belief into a personal, behind-closed-doors practice. She points out that Obama prefers the term freedom of worship rather than religious freedom as evidence that Obama considers religion a purely private matter. He wanted to completely remove Christianity from public life. She references Karl Marx's often-cited, and often misinterpreted, religion is the opiate of the masses, quote, writing, Like Marx, Obama views traditional religion as a temporary opiate for the poor, confused, and jobless, a drug that will dissipate, he hopes, as the federal government assumes more godlike powers, and his new morality of abortion, subsidized contraception, and gay marriage gains adherence. She reproduces Obama's infamous quote that jobless Midwesterners get bitter, they cling to guns or religion or antipathy to people who aren't like them. It's clear early on in the book that Phyllis intends to play all the hits. Phyllis argues that unless the HHS mandate is rescinded, Catholic hospitals, which form one of the largest private providers of health care in the country, will go out of business in 2014. But quite the contrary. Catholic hospitals and healthcare providers grew 22% between 2001 and 2016. In 2020, the nonprofit organization Community Catalyst published a study showing that the last two decades have seen steady growth of Catholic health services. And what's more, these entities aren't serving the poor and needy, as Schlafly asserts. They serve a lower percentage of Medicaid patients than secular hospitals and provide less charity care. They receive $47 billion a year in government payments, and recently, billions in COVID-19 bailout funds. And yet, even now, Catholic hospitals are being sued for refusing to treat transgender people. They're happy to take the public's money, but not so happy to be required to serve the public. Religious Americans who oppose the more secularizing forces in society removal of under God from the pledge, the Ten Commandments, prayer in school, and such, often point out that separation of church and state is nowhere in the Constitution, and that if it applies to religious life at all, then it is a separation of the federal government from state and local practices. Hewing very close to the Congress shall establish no religion language of the First Amendment, 
these religious conservatives do not consider freedom from religion a legitimate right. So, employees living at the whims of their employers when it comes to access to medical care is fine. Requiring hospitals that receive taxpayer funds to provide universal, non-discriminatory care is tyranny. And Schlafly talks about access to contraceptives in the most crass and disrespectful terms. I'll quote at length. If you don't want to underwrite the contraceptive-driven promiscuity of your employees, well, too bad, says Obama, in effect. The notion that American citizens enjoy a constitutional right to force employers to underwrite their sex lives would have left George Washington and the other founding fathers baffled and near speechless. Where, Washington might have asked a brazen colonial barmaid taken with that notion, does such a right originate? Does it come from God? Surely not. It can only come from the whims of a degraded regime of fallen and deluded men. Who else would dare dignify such an absurdity as an inalienable right? I have to say, I just love her writing style. But nobody tell her about the whole Jesus-loving prostitutes and adulteresses stuff. Now, forgive a little editorializing, but this really cracks me up. As if George Washington could have possibly anticipated hormonal birth control, which, by the way, is used to treat a wide range of conditions, from endometriosis to alopecia. But follow this logic where it will lead you. Why should a vegan employer be forced to pay for insulin for type 2 diabetics? Just eat better. Why should a teetotaler be required to provide coverage for someone with cirrhosis? Shouldn't have been drinking. How about lung cancer? You're the one who decided to live at a busy intersection full of car exhaust. Varicose veins? You should have gotten that standing desk. I could go on, but you get the point. It's, it's just not a practical or humane way to manage health care. Of course, having employers be the main provider of insurance is also pretty ridiculous, but that's a conversation for another time. Next up, we have two flat-out incorrect statements from Phyllis, and we'll cover these just for fun, really. First, she claims that the etymology of the word good is God. Now, I don't want to get too in the weeds, but good and God are near homophones, words that sound similar but have different etymological origins. Good originates from the Proto-Indo-European root ged, meaning join or suit, like suitable. From there, it hits Proto-Germanic as godas, then Old English as god, and finally good in Middle English. God, on the other hand, comes from the Proto-Indo-European geo, for to call or invoke, then Proto-Germanic guda, and then Old English and Middle English as god. And of course, the idea that two words as old as these would share an origin doesn't make any sense when you realize that the idea of God being good is a fairly recent development in the grand scheme of things. Anyway, falsehood number two, Nazis were pagans. This is a common misconception, probably because Hitler was pretty wishy-washy on his own religious beliefs. But a census conducted six years into the Nazi regime showed that 54% of Germans identified as Protestants, 40% as Catholic, 3.5% as believing in God, and a tiny 1.5% as atheists. Now, Phyllis, being a Harvard-educated, devout Catholic with a mind like a steel trap, very likely already knows these things. But again, if we learn anything from Phyllis, it's to never let facts get in the way of a good argument. Okay, a bit of a detour. Let's get back to Obama. 
Phyllis uses some very floral language when describing him. A secular demigod, at once smiling and pitiless, presented to an unredeemed people amidst the backdrop of oversized and plastic Greek columns at the Democratic National Convention in 2008. The book is full of this kind of language, very similar to her over-the-top descriptions of the fearsome kingmakers in A Choice Not an Echo. In Chapter 3 of the book, Phyllis gives us an index of Obama's repression of religion, and I'll just give you the highlights. He gave tax money to NGOs that perform abortions abroad. He got rid of the conscience protections that allow medical providers to refuse treatments that they feel are immoral, including the treatment of gay and lesbian patients. He broke the tradition of holding a public prayer event at the White House on the National Day of Prayer. He proposed a plan to cut D.C.'s school voucher program, which largely went to parochial schools. He eliminated funding for abstinence-only sex ed. He appointed a gay pederast to the Department of Education. This was a blatant lie to smear the gay rights activist perpetrated by Sean Hannity. He extended federal benefits to same-sex partners of government employees. He omitted their creator from his recitations of the Declaration of Independence, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. He falsely claimed that the United States motto is e pluribus unum, out of many, one, when the actual motto, as recognized by Congress, is in God we trust. This one actually led the House of Representatives to introduce and pass a bill reaffirming that In God We Trust is definitely, totally our actual motto. And the list goes on and on. Each of these facts about the Obama administration is proof of Schlafly's central point. Obama and his Democrat lackeys are big fakers when it comes to religion. They cloak their policy in religious morality when it suits them with seductive sophistries and religious-sounding rationalizations. Obama says that it is his faith that compels him to fight for the rights of LGBT people, but to Phyllis, it has nothing to do with closely held beliefs and everything to do with trickery. And he learned it from the best, Saul Alinsky. Saul Alinsky is a big boogeyman for the right wing and his connections to both Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama provided great fodder for the likes of Glenn Beck and Sean Hannity over the years. He's been painted as a radical communist, but in fact, Alinsky called communism a damn nuisance and considered any overly dogmatic approach to activism a hindrance. Alinsky's real crime was that he was an effective community organizer who explicitly valued human rights over property rights and human flourishing over the interests of capital. A key element of his community organizing was to meet people where they were at. He believed that if you wanted to rally people behind a cause, you had to insert yourself into the organizations and gathering places that people were already comfortable with, that they already trusted. As such, he did work with churches, as well as local clubs, businesses, and community groups of all stripes. To Schlafly and many other far-right thinkers, this made Alinsky a snake in the grass taking advantage of faithful people to spread communism. But what's funny about the whole thing, and this is, of course, a thread knitting together all partisan politics, is that a great many leftists were extremely critical of Alinsky for not going far enough, for thinking too small and locally, for doing little beyond creating a slightly nicer ghetto. The right's great Satan is the left's milquetoast organizer who palled around with too many establishment Democrats. And in fact, conservatives were more than happy to take a few pages out of Saul Alinsky's book. Literally. 
Tea Party activists widely shared Alinsky's Rules for Radicals and even adapted the book to suit their own purposes better. Rules for Patriots doesn't have quite the same ring to it. And the book's utility to the right wing didn't stop them at all from hanging Alinsky around the necks of Clinton and Obama. Hillary Clinton had written about Alinsky's methods for her senior thesis at Wellesley, which had been quite critical of him and his belief that political change needed to come from outside the system. But to hear Republicans tell it, Hillary Clinton worshipped Alinsky. And Obama had, as they put it, been educated in the Alinsky model of community organizing. Now, why exactly building coalitions in poor neighborhoods to win better living and working conditions for people is a great evil? Who can say? But one thing conservatives, including Schlafly in no higher power, obsessively point to is the supposed dedication of Rules for Radicals, which reads, Lest we forget at least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to the very first radical, from all our legends, mythology, and history, and who is to know where mythology leaves off and history begins, or which is which, the first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and did it so effectively that he at least won his own kingdom, Lucifer. Now, this isn't a dedication. It's actually just an epigraph and is the only place in the book Lucifer is referred to, and Satan appears zero times. But to hear conservatives from Phyllis Schlafly to Ben Carson tell it, the entire book is a love letter to Satan himself. Which is, of course, ridiculous, and she knows it, but it's pure catnip for the religious right. For Phyllis, Obama, Alinsky, and Reverend Jeremiah Wright form a triangle, a trinity, if you will, of insincere, manipulative, reverse racist, secularist socialism seeking to turn America into an atheistic dystopia in which the state determines everything from healthcare to child rearing to religious practice. Reading her book, you would be surprised to find out that Obama was just 11 years old when Saul Alinsky died. It sounds like they worked side by side 40 hours a week and met for beers every weekend. You might also get the impression that Obama spent decades as a dedicated community organizer, rather than a three-year stint between undergrad and law school. I could go on and on listing the misrepresentations and outright lies in Phyllis Schlafly's dressing down of Barack Obama, but then this series might go on forever. What matters is that she frames Obama as an evildoer and a deliberate one at that. A poll conducted by public policy polling in 2013 showed that one in four Americans believed that Obama might be the Antichrist. He was a very divisive figure. Democrats mostly loved him, and Republicans almost universally despised him. Leftists found him disappointing, and conservatives believed he was the most radical socialist in American politics. By the time Obama left office the American public was more polarized than at any time since the Gilded Age. So, it makes sense that Republican voters turned to the anti-Obama in the 2016 election. Donald Trump was one of the most prominent proponents of the birther conspiracy about Obama's origins. And while Schlafly never comes out and endorses the theory, she does vaguely gesture at it throughout no higher power. Just a year before the publication of that book, 
Donald Trump went on The View to espouse the birther theory and announce that he was seriously considering a run for president. He'd been threatening to run since 1987, and actually did run on Ross Perot's Reform Party ticket in 2000, but the policies he'd proposed before 2012 had been largely in line with the Democratic Party. And in fact, he was registered as a Democrat between 2001 and 2009. He even left the Reform Party because of the involvement of white supremacist David Duke and conservative Pat Buchanan, writing in a remarkably lucid article for the New York Times that, that is not company I wish to keep. Before his 2016 run, Trump was known as a brash womanizer, a capricious and perpetually bankrupt businessman, a racist who discriminated against black tenants in his residential buildings, and a political opportunist who flirted with both the Democrat and Republican parties. So it was odd that Phyllis Schlafly came out so solidly in favor of Donald Trump. But come out she did, in her final book, The Conservative Case for Trump. Co-authored with the Equal Forum president Ed Martin and writer and professor Brett M. Decker, the book argues that Donald Trump offers the American public something it's been yearning for, a choice, not an echo a candidate not intimidated by political correctness or the liberal media. In the introduction, written in first person by presumably Schlafly, it reads, I know that some well-meaning conservatives find Trump puzzling or even offensive, but I trust that this book, the culmination, for me, of more than 70 years of active involvement in Republican politics, might help sway them, and that he could be the most conservative president we've had since Ronald Reagan. It seems that Phyllis approved of Trump taking up Reagan's old slogan, Let's Make America Great Again. The book was published four months after Trump had won the Republican primary and is one long plea for Republicans to turn out for Trump in the general election against Clinton. She argues that Trump has fought harder than congressional Republicans on five major issues that resonate with voters. Immigration, trade, Islamism, foreign policy, and social security. The book draws a compelling comparison to 1980, when conservatives were told over and over that Ronald Reagan was too extreme and that an actor couldn't compete against an experienced politician like Jimmy Carter. They were wrong then, and they are wrong now. She writes, Reagan was in many ways controversial, unorthodox, and even brash. He broke the mold for what was considered acceptable in national politics, which turned out to be exactly what voters frustrated by the Carter malaise wanted. She goes on to say that Donald Trump is obviously not Ronald Reagan. No one else is. But I do sincerely believe that Donald Trump can remake our politics as Reagan did, give the Republican Party what has eluded them in five of the last six presidential elections, an electoral college and popular vote majority. She was right on all accounts, except that last one. Phyllis begins with one of the biggest flashpoints in American politics, immigration. She pulls out the old canard that Democrats' support for liberal immigration is a deliberate plot to reshape the demographics of the United States to win them elections. While past waves of immigrants were grateful for the opportunities America offered them, these no-good immigrants of today are totally unpatriotic, They refuse to assimilate, and they are spoon-fed leftist lies about how racist and oppressive America is. Trump's immigration policies will solve all of this. 
you know, build the wall, make Mexico pay for it, triple the number of ICE agents at the border, defund sanctuary cities, and get rid of those insidious anchor babies. The book then cites a dubious statistic, that undocumented immigrants are 3.5% of the population and commit 36.7% of all federal crimes as of 2014. For one, definitionally, every undocumented person has already committed a federal crime, illegal entry, which likely explains a huge proportion of that 36%. Why do I say likely? Because we don't keep good records of these things at all. Only one state in the Union keeps detailed records on undocumented immigrants and crime. Texas. And you know what the numbers out of Texas indicate? That undocumented people commit crimes at substantially lower rates than people born in the United States. Again, we don't want to drown in fact-checking here, but it's important to point out that Phyllis and her co-authors use things like studies and quotations and endnotes to give their arguments a veneer of legitimacy but it turns out citing Breitbart for your statistics can be misleading. Who'd have thunk it? Schlafly is especially concerned with so-called seed communities that come here to spread radical Islamic ideology and sow terror, as well as children born to undocumented people. She claims that 10% of all live births in the United States are born to undocumented people. She writes, In fact, there is an entire industry called birth tourism offering birth packages costing thousands of dollars. She claims that a billboard in Mexico advertises this service. And the advantages of birth tourism are immense. Babies get Medicaid, needy family assistance, and food stamps. As an adult, the baby can legalize their parents and bring in a foreign-born spouse. The result of all of this is a population living in the United States that never assimilates into our own culture, the way previous waves of white immigrants did. The problem with this narrative is that the percent of babies born to undocumented immigrants dropped substantially under Obama, from 9% in 2007 to 6% in 2016. And in fact, immigrants' rights groups called him the deporter-in-chief. Three million immigrants were deported during Obama's tenure, with 1.6 million in his first term alone. Trump's deportation numbers lagged significantly behind Obama's in his four years as president. His promise to deport 11 million immigrants is closer to 900,000. But whatever the numbers, the biggest problem, according to Phyllis, is that the left actively discourages their assimilation by promoting multiculturalism and the myth of white privilege. Quoting Trump, the authors write, How can we feel good about handing over this mess to our children and grandchildren? How can we think about the hundreds of thousands of soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines who have died for our freedom and way of life and not be ashamed at how we've let their gift be trashed and abused? Just four years later, a source would leak to the press that Trump called armed service people losers and suckers for getting killed during World War I. I mean, how hard is it to get your dad to find a doctor who will diagnose you with bone spurs as a favor to him? What a bunch of rubes. On trade, Phyllis likes his promise to keep jobs in America, worked by Americans, and to even bring back jobs that have self-deported to places like communist China. Gotta put that communist in there. Where wages are cheaper and regulations more lax. She complains about Republicans co-conspiring with Democrats to get things like NAFTA and the Trans-Pacific Partnership secreted through the legislative system, 
giving away pieces of our sovereignty to internationalist, a not-so-subtle nod to globalists and all the anti-Semitism that entails. The result of these trade deals is that we give away our massive consumer market to producers like Korea while selling very little domestic product to our trade partners. She claims that before Donald Trump, there had been no effective national political spokesman for the American worker. A pretty bold statement. And what's more, the outpouring of support in this election for Donald Trump, and to a certain degree for Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primaries as well, is a manifestation of this frustration in the feeling that establishment politicians do not care or are even aware of the plight of regular people across the country. And on this, she and I agree. What follows could have been written by any socialist worth their salt. A litany of evils imposed by income inequality and moneyed elites who offshore millions of dollars and millions of jobs while suppressing wages at home. But that line of thought doesn't travel very far before we get back to the real villains. China, political correctness, evil Muslims, judicial activism, public school indoctrination. Schlafly's big baddies could be picked out of any pro-Trump Facebook group to this day. But perhaps the funniest part of the book is Chapter 6, titled A Family Man. This was, in fact, what many conservatives objected to during the 2016 presidential primary. Trump was a well-known womanizer, friend of pedophile human trafficker Jeffrey Epstein, a man thrice married who had an affair while still married to his first wife, whose divorce was granted on the grounds of cruel and inhumane treatment of his wife. Sadly, Phyllis died one month before the world learned that Don said women let him grab him by the pussy. But no doubt she would have constructed a few more hoops to jump through in justifying her endorsement of him. But boy, what I wouldn't give to have seen her mental gymnastics on that one. But his liaison with and hush money payments to the pornography actress Stormy Daniels were well known. His disgusting remarks about wanting to have sex with his daughter were well known. His draft dodging was well known. But for the family man chapter of The Conservative Case for Trump, there's only one source. Trump himself. He describes Melania and his children as his closest advisors, claims that he is on good terms with his two ex-wives, and calls himself a proud Christian despite never attending church regularly. Describing his switch from being pro-abortion to anti-abortion, the authors write, A man who can have that sort of heartfelt conversion is a good man. There are many other interesting quirks and side notes in The Conservative Case for Trump, and I'm going to produce a supplementary episode on all the strange and fascinating things I couldn't fit here, which you'll be able to hear for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash reactionpodcast. While some of her followers were surprised that Phyllis supported Trump, reading her book erases all confusion on the subject, particularly her paleoconservative approach to foreign policy and immigration, her faith in social security, and her flair for the dramatic all line up with Trump's rhetoric in both substance and style. But I think the number one reason she liked Trump and advocated for him was that he was an outsider. She hammers home the failure of so-called conservatives in Congress to stop Obama's tyranny. She pillories Republicans and Democrats alike for failing to uphold core American values. Liberty, free enterprise, small government, and protecting workers. 
This is the song she has been singing since the 1950s, and with hindsight, it's obvious that Trump is the natural progression of her 70 years in politics. But Phyllis paid a heavy price for her support of Donald Trump. Her Eagle Forum, and particularly the so-called Gang of Six, which consisted of several board members, favored Ted Cruz over Trump. And not by a little. When Schlafly officially came out for Trump, the Gang of Six had a telephone meeting in which they tried to take control of the organization from Phyllis. The meeting violated the Eagle Forum bylaws. And when she dialed in to object to the meeting, she was muted from the call. Kathy Adams, who at the time ran the Texas branch of the Eagle Forum, accused those closest to Schlafly, including Ed Martin, her co-author and at the time president of the Eagle Forum, of exploiting a little old lady. Adams told the Dallas Morning News that, I think this is very much manipulation. When you're 91 and you're not out with the grassroots all the time, it is very much taking advantage of someone. The Gang of Six even included her own daughter, Anne. Phyllis said of the hostile takeover, It's disloyal, and it's terribly shocking, and I'm completely depressed about it. When Phyllis Schlafly died in September of 2016, the Eagle Forum split in two, with Ed Martin and Schlafly's two sons John and Andy starting Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Andy also founded the website Conservapedia, which will be featured in a supplemental episode on the Patreon feed. Phyllis Schlafly Eagles hosts written and audio content and puts on various events around the country. Looking at who got what in the divorce, you can see that the Phyllis Schlafly Eagles got the Phyllis Schlafly Report, while the Eagle Forum got the Eagle Forum Report. It's funny, because both organizations have very similar content and missions, with the biggest difference being that the newer Phyllis Schlafly Eagles have a slightly better website. In The Conservative Case for Trump, the authors write, He knows that if Liberty's defenders don't step forward now, if we don't win in 2016, America as we know it could be finished. And at most, we will be left with cinematic fragments of what once was, watching old Hollywood films starring Ronald Reagan. And you'd think that after 70 years of fear-mongering about imminent civilizational collapse that it would kind of lose some of its oomph. But look around. The frenzied hysteria around a nation, a people, a way of life on the brink of total destruction is more palpable than ever. We are living in the world that Phyllis Schlafly helped create. Pedophilic elites, critical race theory, the end of gendered bathrooms and the takeover of the LGBTQ agenda, Chinese communists indoctrinating children through apps, dangerous and mandatory vaccines, schools teaching children how to have sex. The list goes on. The boogeyman is as powerful as ever. In the end, the Eagle Forum came around on Trump, as did the vast majority of conservatives who didn't support him in 2016. Phyllis's prediction came to pass. Donald Trump did remake the Republican Party as Reagan did, though in very different ways and to very different ends. And Phyllis was a crucial player in both of those revolutions. There's no doubt that without her, the 21st century looks very different. A brilliant and effective activist, a charming spokeswoman and fierce debate opponent, an indefatigable workhorse and a force to be reckoned with. We can only hope that we never see her like again.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Reaction. If you like the show, please rate and review it. And consider supporting my work by visiting patreon.com slash reactionpodcast. There, you can find all the episode scripts, as well as bonus audio content that supplements the main episodes. Follow the show on Twitter at Reaction Podcast for episode updates, and send your questions or feedback to reactionpod at gmail.com. This show is written and produced by me, Brittany Gill. Until next time, 